presence. I invite you to stand as a gesture of reverence uh, for the reading of God's word today. We're in 2 Timothy uh, 3 and 4, um, verses 14 through 4 4. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may grab a seat. The past five weeks, if you've been with us, we've been on our series of the Bible, talking about what, why, and how of the Bible. What actually is the Bible? Like, how do we get access to it? How did it get to where we have it now? Um, Why do we hold it in such a high light as Christians, even still today? And how do we read it in light of what it is and why we read it? And so my main goals of this series, and I realize it's just starting the process of it, but my main goals would be to increase our sense of trust and confidence in the scripture. That if you're a Christian and you already trust Jesus, scripture would have it that our trust in Jesus would also mean a trust in scripture. But oftentimes in our culture, mainly because of how scripture's been abused, there can be a gap there. And I'm trying to show you that that gap has to close. That to trust Jesus is to trust scripture. And second, if you trust scripture because of that, then to increase our engagement with it. That despite the fact that Jesus holds scripture in such a high light and authorized his followers to write it and circulate it, many times Christians today don't read it much. We don't engage with it much. Not just don't read it personally, but just don't engage with it much. And so to be a faithful Christian would call us to trust scripture and to read it more. But many times there are obstacles to that that oftentimes we aren't even conscious of. Like there are things that make us kind of hesitant and not trust it. And so those likely will bring forth questions that we are called to respond to. And so we have questions here. So Slido is a way for us to engage with those questions, to not just suppress them or pretend they don't exist, to not just uh, Google them on your own, but to process those questions in Christian community. Now, ideally, our spiritual information groups meeting one-on-one with other Christians is the best way to do it. But if you uh, want to just get the conversation going by asking me questions to kind of respond to and dialogue with you, uh, I, we have two from last week. I'm waiting till this week to basically accumulate all of our questions from the Bible series. So Slido is really easy to work. Go to that site, type in that code, or do a QR code here. Type in any question you want. It can be anonymous. And it's just me engaging with it to start the process to make sure those questions are happening, not just Googling alone, which is not the safest thing we're talking about today, but in Christian community. But to recognize if you feel an opposition or resistance to those two goals, trusting Scripture or engaging with it, those are your, like, points of resistance, and you and me are responsible to push in on those areas. Like, your questions are your questions, 
and I can't deal with all the money on my own, but we have to recognize if we feel an opposition to some area of our faith in Christ, it's on us to explore that, to pursue that in prayer and with Christian community and to search and find and never stop pursuing ways to engage. And so this is one way to do that. I'll probably release that um, before Thanksgiving. Uh, so I hope that, yeah, that's a good way to, to start the process. And so today, uh, our uh, two questions, which are not supposed to be two of the same one. Here's another way of my slide editing happens on the fly. Uh, not ideal. The first question is, what is the Bible's goal? And the second is, how should we read it in light of that goal? So when I say, what is the Bible's goal? It's like, what is its purpose? What is its function or, or, or uh, purpose in a Christian life? What is its intention? What does it do to a Christian when you read it? What's it supposed to do? And in light of that goal or function or purpose of Scripture, how should we read it in light of that goal? And I'm hoping that along the way I'll address some kind of things that stand in the way of us trusting Scripture and being willing to engage with it. So to start with, uh, this is a, a passage from uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy. Timothy's kind of his protege. He's been discipling him, preparing him to also lead churches the way he has led them. This is his last letter, the last thing Paul wrote uh, that is in Scripture. And uh, in the last second to last chapter, he starts to tell him about what he needs him to do. And so before, you, uh, before we kind of get into the purpose of it, notice just by way of review the way Scripture talks about itself. So first it refers to the holy Scriptures. That uh, adjective holy has to do with sacred or transcendent, set apart. So in contrast to other sources of authority and even other texts, scriptures for Christians enjoy a privileged place, a transcendent place in the Christian life that becomes like over top of everything else. So he's likely referring to the Old Testament here, which was written, the beginning of it, over 1,400 years before this point. So you can actually see on display the transcendence of Scripture that Paul would, in, would indicate that Scripture's written that long ago in an entirely different world still had transcendent authority for Timothy and for the Christians he's leading. And why would it have that kind of authority? It's because all Scripture is God-breathed. Some translations might have the word inspired. You might have that inspired. You might have heard the word is inspired by God. I don't think that's the best translation of that because we use the word inspired to mean a lot of things, like an artist being inspired or my sermons are inspired by God and that obviously out of trust in God I'm doing this. That's not what it means. Inspired is like coming from a Latin root of like inbreathed, meaning God's breath is in scriptures. God has breathed them out. Scriptures flow from God. That even though they're, they're going through human beings, who we talked about last week, are like grounded in their time and space and history and personality as they write it, God is the, the originator of them. God is the authorizer of what comes out of Scripture, which gives it life. When God breathes his breath into the dust of Adam and Eve, it gives life to their bodies and their spirits. When God breathes into this Scripture, it contains a life-giving and alive nature to it, which is what makes it so sacred and set apart and transcendent. And of course, what makes them so authoritative and set apart is that they tell the story about Jesus. I've tried to emphasize again and again that Jesus is our king and our authority, and it's by trusting in Jesus that we trust in scripture, and through faith in Jesus, we have faith in the scriptures. And so, as you see from all that, he's telling Timothy, keep doing what you've learned from the beginning, even from infancy, knowing the scriptures. 
as in that the Christian life is by nature textual. Larry Hurtado is one scholar that calls it a bookish religion, that in contrast to the other pagan religions of their day, it is very centered on text. It is constitutionally oriented to text, as other scholars write. That is, it's been central in the early Christian movement, early church movement, that scriptures were written and circulated and collected and publicly read, that it was very centered on scripture reading and scripture uh, reading out loud and scripture taking in, which is why I keep talking about this. So I'm trying to emphasize again and again and again that there's no separation between the practice of faith in Jesus and the practice of reading and trusting scriptures. So in light of that, what is the goal? Here's a little grammatical lesson for you. When it says that scriptures are able to do something, they're useful for something, and that by taking them in, there's a so that, like the purpose or result of taking it in. These are all words or phrases that indicate a purpose, a goal, a desired result, the expected effect you can have from reading scripture, the hoped-for outcome when you engage it because of what scripture has the power to actually do. And it's crucial to grasp what scripture says its goal is so that we have healthy expectations when we read it. Otherwise, we just import our own goals into it, which are likely based on our own desires or our own culture, and not read scripture on its own terms, seeking to get the answers it's striving to give us and let it accomplish the purpose it's meant to accomplish. So what does this text say the goal is? I would sum it up with the phrase spiritual formation. The goal of scripture is spiritual formation, is to form human beings to become like the spirit, to become like Jesus. It is goal is spiritual formation. So the first kind of phrase that emphasizes this is that it makes us wise for salvation. So this is crucial when biblical wisdom is discussed. When wisdom is talked about in the Bible, it's not talking about just intellectual information. It's not just talking about gathering more content, accumulating more knowledge, inhaling more intellectual knowledge, but rather it's wisdom that is a whole life wisdom. Biblical wisdom, as shown in like Proverbs, is a whole character, whole life kind of moral and practical knowledge. See, me, I love the idea that any problem can be solved by a book, and my best thing I can do is just inhale more content when I face a problem. You like that? Where it's like, hmm, I'm coming up across a problem. I should read a book about it so I know all the answers to it, which I immediately forget and don't apply in my life. I don't know how many times I've read books that are like, oh, that seems like good wisdom, and then not actually do it. That's the opposite of how Scripture is supposed to work. The point of reading it is it makes you wise that it does transform your thinking for sure, but is a thinking that gets embodied into practice. That is what spiritual formation is, is whole self. So there is a point of intellectual information. Christianity does involve content, but it is towards wisdom, and it's the wisdom for salvation, that we are all going towards this place of ultimate rescue by and through Jesus and ultimate restoration of all things, and it is the wisdom that is preparing us for heaven, that is preparing us for that end goal of all creation to become the kind of people ready to be in and enjoy heaven. Scriptures, when you read them and take them in, ideally are having that effect. So how does it go by doing this? Here's a list here that it's useful for. Scripture is useful for teaching. So it does involve some content. You can't get away from the fact there's theological knowledge that is valuable here, that doctrine matters in Christianity. It's just the problem in our culture is we imagine just learning more knowledge is the end of the game. 
And as a person who's been to Bible college and seminary, I can tell you that when you learn a lot of knowledge intellectually, and it doesn't also go with spiritual maturity, that knowledge can do a lot of damage. Which is why many people that are doing what I'm doing now know the content and can communicate it. People are kind of impressed by it because doing this terrifies them, and then they trust the person who doesn't have the character to back it up. I'm able to say this because I'm telling you right now, spiritual maturity matters more. Knowledge puffs up, as Paul says, but love builds up. Knowledge can make arrogant, but love will edify. So scripture does teach us. It does give us information and teach us doctrine and content. Like it's rooted in real life, real stories, real events, real people that we have to learn. It's information we don't know, but it's information towards whole whole life wisdom. Now here's where it starts getting fun. Rebuking, which means in no uncertain terms. The goal of scripture, what it will do to you, is hold a mirror up to things of what you think and do that are a problem and tell you no. Where you want to say yes to something, scripture will say no. Where you want to be passive and sit back, scripture will say get up and do something. Where you want to believe X, scripture will correct you and rebuke you and say, nope, not that, but why? And I have more to say on that as we go here. Correcting Almost the same tone of rebuking, but has a more positive outcome. Rebuking is a hard no. Correcting is more like towards improvement. It's like it's a rebuke that is a hard no, but it is towards like improvement in the way this word would be used as like making improvements to a city or like renovating a house. So scripture's function in Christian life is to help renovate your heart to become the kind of person that Jesus wants you to be. So it is a hard rebuke and no in order to say yes to what actually is the life-giving way of life. This is correcting, and this is, and then, of course, training in righteousness, that training us to become a covenant people that reflects what it looks like to be in right relationship with God and to know and do and live in the right way, training in righteousness, so that, as a servant of God says, you may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, again, spiritual formation in our culture oftentimes ends up being uh, a, a process of self-discovery, of self-fulfillment, of self-actualization and self-love. Notice how much self is there that I enjoy scripture because it provides me with a nice warm glow personally for my self-improvement plan. But every good work in the New Testament is code for outward-facing love. So what scripture does to you is produce a person to live a Christ-like life that is self-giving, self-sacrificial, on mission with Jesus to serve others. Spiritual formation is, hits a roadblock if it ends with you, but it is towards the outside. So as a whole, then, Scripture's goal is that spiritual formation process that involves transformation from the inside out to live like Jesus. But I want to come back to this bit about teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, and righteousness. All of those words imply that we have something that we're lacking, that we have something that is wrong with us, that we have an area that is a problem that needs help, right? They all imply that. If you're being taught something, there's something that you don't know. That alone is hard to hear. If you know this, when you try to teach kids something and they hate learning a new lesson, they'll be like, I know. It's like, no, you didn't know. I had to tell you. You didn't know beforehand. You learned it with me. It's okay that you didn't know something already. 
the kids like would like to already know all the things. Like, no, you no, you don't know yet. You're learning, and that's okay. But script, but for some reason, adult Christians have a hard time with that. So it's like the thought that this text is going to teach me something I don't already know is is already a threat to our arrogance a little bit. All the more the next two, rebuking and correcting. I oftentimes experience that when we sit down, oftentimes if you're like me, you in, you ingest scripture in your most comfortable state, right? Temperature's set just right. This kind of weather, man, you got the fireplace on. You got your favorite sweatpants, maybe your favorite little house shoes, cup of coffee in your hand, favorite drink. You want it quiet, perfect conditions, you know what I mean? I don't want any kids bother me when I read scripture, man. You be quiet, don't be awake yet. And like when you're in that state, it's really hard not to expect the effect of Scripture to kind of hit you with that warm glow, where we expect a warmth positivity as the primary outcome of engaging with Scripture, that we should maybe feel and experience God much more than we can experience being transformed by God. But if you encounter Scripture with that expectation, you're, you're missing the boat of what it's after if it's going to kind of reveal weaknesses, it's going to point out stuff we need help with. And I think this becomes a big reason why we may avoid Scripture. Because it's hard to get away from the fact that it's going to challenge us, not just challenge us in the way we expect to be challenged. I think most of us expect the challenge of like, yes, yeah, Scripture's going to tell me to pray more. I already expect that challenge. Like, when you come to church, you expect to be told, maybe you should pray more. I mean even challenge you in ways that surprise you that you didn't even realize you should be challenged by this, but then you read the whole thing and like, oh, geez, I haven't thought about that one, and I don't really want to today. But then you read the next passage, and it will do it again. And it becomes a thing that over time, it keeps on holding a mirror up to the ways you need to be transformed, to the problems you have, as opposed to a way to kind of affirm and prop up what you already think, to be a mirror of what you already expect and to kind of affirm desires you already have. In fact, it's going to be hard and challenging. Hebrews 4 says this in even harder terms. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirits, spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If this makes your heart kind of sink, Good, man. (laughs) That's what it kind of feels like. I'm trying to be honest about what being a Christian actually can feel like. But notice that this writer of Hebrews is noting what's happening at the end of all things. That God is going to judge the world. He is going to lay bare and uncover all the things. There is a judgment of sorts of even our blind spots and deception and self-deception. But he's saying we have a gift here in this word that will let us get on with the thing that's all coming our way anyway. Instead of, like, wishing to avoid that process by disengaging from Scripture, shutting our ears to it, not being involved in church, not reading on our own, and kind of thinking we can kind of sneak in to the rest God is offering us that Hebrews 4 is about, the rest he's offering without facing the facts of the challenges we have, he said, we have this gift of the Word that will start doing the work right now that God's going to be doing anyway. Because it is alive and active, that's because it's God-breathed, but it cuts hard. It's like, and it's a cut that almost you almost don't even feel because it is so sharp, it like kind of goes right to the heart. It's like me when I shave my head with a fresh razor, man. I cut myself every single time. It's like, man, and I don't even feel it. 
I'm like walking around the house and Graham's like, you have blood like dripping all over your neck and stuff like that. And please don't sit down on our couch because it's going to get on a pillow. But it's like you don't even feel it because it cuts so deep to the core. And that's how God's word can be where you read it again and again and it does penetrate to the heart. And so this just conditions me to be okay with that feeling. If you don't know these expectations and you start reading it and feeling that sense of conviction or a challenge, that will make you shut and think something's wrong with you. This instead says, you should expect this. God is not surprised by it. You shouldn't be either. And so then when you read it or encounter it and are left with confusion and questions, conviction and challenge, like something that's like poking and pushing at you, it's like, oh, the word itself tells me to expect this, so it's nothing to fear. Sometimes the surprise is what throws us off the game more than anything. But if we have the healthy expectation this is just normal, then we'll take it. But notice the thoughts and attitudes, too. This gets to the heart that many of you in this room are already doing this. You're already, like, ready for the challenge. And you will hear everything I've said at this point through a, through a lens of shame. Yes, this is right. This is only confirming something's wrong with me. God doesn't like me. Look at him. He's the one who shot me with a sword. But the thoughts and attitudes sometimes are things that are harming us. They are thoughts that are crushing us. They are lies that we're tempted to believe that actually take life away from us. And so sometimes what it's challenging us on is not so much like do more, be better, stop being terrible, but more like stop believing the lie that is harming you. Stop trusting in a temptation that is stealing life away from you. Stop moving in a way of life that is robbing you of relationship and taking away peace and making you more anxious. That what a lot of times it's correcting, and it's just as painful to get those kind of shameful lies revealed and plucked out of you and having surgery on you on your heart. That actually can be harder but it's so affirming and encouraging where the word wants to affirm who you are as God's person, that you are who you are because of grace and forgiveness, and yet a lot of the challenges, therefore, let us uproot the lies that get in the way of you being who God has already made you to be. He's already saved you and made you holy, and the word is about slicing and dicing, doing surgery on your heart to reflect to the world who God has already made you to be. That makes this challenge a very encouraging process and not one of like, be better so that you can be saved. But God has already made you saved and given you life. Let this word lacerate the values of this world so that you can live into the joyful life he's invited you to live. There's a difference there. It might feel the same on the outside of the challenge, but it's a challenge towards the core of your identity that brings encouragement in the end and love from the Lord. It's a surgery that you need. It's like you can either take this surgery now by going to the doctor, and he's going to like do it in a healthy way that you can recover from, or you can duck and avoid it to let the problem get much worse and the surgery be much more painful. The word of God on a regular basis helps cut to the heart of that. And why do we need this level of surgery anyway. Timothy keeps going, or Paul keeps going in Timothy to describe how needed this is in, in our life. It says, in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, it's echoing here what Hebrews says, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. So he's saying, in the end of all things, man, Jesus is going to judge the world. We better get on with uh, being prepared for that. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage, which is the same thing that the word's supposed to be able to do, with great patience and careful instruction. There seems to be, passages like this haunt me, man, because it's just emphasizing how much it takes careful and patient process to do what I'm doing right now, 
everything I'm saying to you is, is hard for me to even read because I realize how much I'm a part of this process with you all and how much damage I can inflict. So um, prayers, thoughts and prayers for me. Um, let's keep going here now uh, of, how, of what he says about why we need this surgery. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So what he's saying is why we need the word to do this surgery is that many of us still have deep desires that are in rebellion to Jesus. And oftentimes they're so deep within that it's hard for us to even be sensitive. You're almost kind of a bit self-deceived about whether that even exists. And that reading the word, engaging with the word, helps kind of pluck out and reveal these desires that are in conflict with the word. And we need this. He's saying you need this kind of life-giving nature. Otherwise, without the word, those desires will rule, and we will pursue all of the questions we have by gathering around us teachers that will mirror back to us what we want to hear. This is why Googling alone in order to learn theology and learn Bible and do spiritual formation is like a terrible practice. If you're like, man, I have lots of questions. I have a good idea. Let's go Google. That is a dangerous thing because Google knows how to basically mirror back to you the desires you already have. Whatever it is that you want to find, Google is like, I can help you find it. If you're like, man, I'm really thinking about this decision, and you kind of subtly say what you want it to do, like, why is it bad for me to run? I remember, like, Googling this. I used to be a runner. I'm like, eh, what if I don't want to run anymore? What does damage to running do to your knees? <laughs> like, first 10 pages, running's bad for your knees. Great. I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. Then it's like, man, I kind of miss running. Like, how can running be healthy for my joints? And it's like, boom, 10 pages for it. But all the more with spirituality and TikTok and Instagram and all that, YouTube becomes a great way to just gather around teachers that are really good at saying what it is you want them to hear, which is what we can make the word do and what we make church folks do as well. And, and what we'll do with this process is turn away from the truth as communicated through scripture and turn aside to other myths, as in other big narratives and big stories for our life that kind of just affirm our current desires. So get this, either the Bible the word of God will be the transcendent authority that will do surgery on your heart to get you to live in accordance with it, or the other myths and stories surrounding us in conjunction with our desires will be the one that's doing the surgery. What I'm saying is everybody is having an outside authority that is doing surgery on your heart and life to form you. Everybody's being spiritually formed. That's not an option. If you're a human being, you're already geared toward a direction, and it's making you become that way. That's why many times when you meet older people, they're either like the sweetest people you know or the most grumpy, like, man, that person is like an old curmudgeon because their whole life has been formed. They've been facing a direction, maybe even unintentionally, but their practices and what they're taking in and how they're measuring what they're taking in is forming them to either be that sweet old person, because it's formed them that way, or to become an old curmudgeon, because you cannot duck that you are being formed. And you will either, and that formation is a process of surgery, where some big myth or big story is doing surgery on your life 
to make the rest of your life line up with that big truth or big myth. And as Christians, the word of God is what gets that. It's a rooted, stable text that what we talk about the all, all uh, series that God has authorized and has, has come from God that becomes the measure that which, by which we keep evaluating everything. And let that then be the thing that is the filter against the kind of things that come in and out of our culture. And we desperately need that or else we will just uh, kind of acquiesce to whatever's around us. So the Bible's goal is spiritual formation. Everybody is being formed by something. You might as well be formed by the scripture, which is what Jesus wants us to be formed by. So how should we read it in light of that goal? If the goal is transformation, the Bible's uh, recommended way to read it is through meditation. Psalm 1, which is seen as kind of a um, preamble to the Psalms, starts like this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So this thought of meditation is not so much stepping into a trance. The thought is that the Bible is meditative literature and that you can't just read it once and be done. You sit in it. And it kinda, it's a kind of thing that you gather meaning and clarity on as you take it in over time. That's why the people you feel like have a good sense of wisdom, you get behind the curtain and realize they've been taking in scripture like crazy for a long time. And it's like years and years and years of reading the same passages over and over again. I mentioned about uh, the first our series on this when my daughter recently asked why I keep reading scripture. So you've already read the Bible. Why are you reading it again for? You read it once, you know it, you should be done. But I had to try to teach her that it's a meditative thing that you read over and over again like a good, deep poem. You can't get it one time. You've got to learn to sit in it and read slowly and read it again. And you come back after experiencing life and read it again. And you read, experience more life and pain and relationships and love, and you read it again. And the passage then kind of get clarity over time of the meaning of it by meditating it. And he says day and night, meaning you kind of are always trying to look to take it in. This is not meant to be a pressure of like, okay, everybody needs to get on their game and like accumulate tons of content of the Bible. But in general, a, a disposition that says, I cannot get scripture if I don't make a practice of taking it in a lot and over the course of life. There's no legalism around this. Don't try to say I have to do X, Y, Z. It's just in general having a goal that says I need to sit in it or else it won't be able to do the surgery. Because if you read it quickly and one time and kind of rarely, it ends up functioning to just mirror back those desires which we're trying to get away from. It ends up being like a way, a sidekick to just be along the way, furniture in my life to just tell me what I want to hear. But by sitting in it, and reading the whole thing often, and with other people, we are prone to let it do the surgery on us and reveal where there's blind spots where we need to be taught and rebuked and corrected and improved and trained to be prepared for the way of God. So it's meditative literature, but it's also communal literature. I love this from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit down and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your heads, hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So this is clearly like 
you are prone to forget. The next verses are like, you have spiritual amnesia, and you will ignore what I've told you. So to help you remember and get it down, be constantly thinking about it. But talk about it. So it's first this your hearts. This is a plural your. This is like where the Jonesy International Version will be like y'all's hearts. Impress them on y'all's, y'all's all's hearts. Uses hearts because it's like y'all as a community, this is your text. And I want you to be talking about it all the time. Let it talk about it with your children so they can hear it and you can learn it again by talking about it. Talk about it with your friends when you're walking, when you're working, when you're lying, when you're sitting. Tie them as symbols to help you get it in your brain. This is like, I want this in my body. That's the, that's the kind of delight in the law that we're called to have that many of us don't naturally have. You're like, well, I don't feel like it. You're not alone. Most of us don't. But you have to like, discipline ourselves to step on the track to say, I want to want to delight in this. Help me learn to. And what you'll find is over time, you'll learn to love it. It's like with any hard discipline. If you never tried to have like to eat well or to like try to care about your fitness and you suddenly try to, you hate it. You're like, man, I think I'm allergic to exercise. It makes me kind of my skin flush and I start sweating and I think that's an allergic reaction. No, it's not. It's good for your body. But once you do it for like four to six weeks, you're like, man, I actually feel better. My mood's better. I feel like it's improved my life. Scripture's the same way. You're not going to want to do this. It's going to feel terrible. But when you do it over time with people, you're like, oh, man, I can't imagine going without it. And it becomes a thing you can't get enough of because you can't get enough of Jesus. And that's what I want to keep emphasizing and close out with again as we close out this series, that all the talk about Scripture is not because Scripture's God, it's because Jesus is. And he's the greatest authority we could ever imagine. He's seen us in our weakness and our wounds and our sins and our blind spots, all the, the crazy, terrible stuff that Scripture's going to point out in us. God has already seen us in that and loved us to the end anyway. And he's shown it in a real way that we can tangibly grasp by dying for us to give his life away so that we can be in life with him forever. And it's out of receiving that love, you're like, I want anything that Jesus is about. And then we start to read and listen from Jesus and learn from other Christians to discover Jesus was about scripture. He's like, all this stuff's about me anyway, and now I'm going to authorize my key followers who have seen me and know me and listened to me the most to tell you more about all that I've taught them, and I want that to form you constantly. And I'm not going to leave you alone in it, but I'm giving you my spirit to help you so that you can learn how much I love you and taste how much and experience how much I'm with you and live a life that reflects to the world that you are being renewed because I'm renewing the whole world. That's the role scripture has. It's not to make me arrogant so I can know all my stuff. It's to help me grasp how good our loving God is, to help me read again and again and again the ways he's cared for the children in this world that have been orphaned, that have, that have rejected him, that have done some of the worst things ever, and yet he's like, I love them to the end. Scripture forms us to experience and embrace that love and remember the sacrifice it took to get there. There's no guilt and legalism. It's like, I want that so I can be formed by the God who loves me, so I can know the one who knows me, so I can be formed and loved like the one who has loved me. That's why we read scripture that transforms us and do it meditatively and with community. Let's pray.